Welcome to 4D. Deep dive into degenerative diseases. Gaining insights through casual and amusing clinical conversations. Welcome to 4D, a podcast brought to you by the ANPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group. I'm Karen Paget, a physical therapist, and I'm part of the podcast team of the DDC. We are excited to bring you interviews with our recent poster awardees from the ANPT annual conference. We have two people that we're speaking with, and here are their interviews. We would like to welcome Dr. Rochelle Hoffman to 4D. Dr. Hoffman was the recipient of one of our poster awards at the recent ANPT annual conference. And we have her here to talk about her poster. So Rochelle, welcome. And tell us a little bit about yourself before we get into your poster. Sure. Thanks, Parm. And I just want to say thank you to the Degenerative Disease SIG for having me on tonight and for the award. Huge honor. Um, A little bit about myself. I'm a physical therapist as well as I have a specialty in geriatrics and went on to get a PhD, and currently I'm doing a postdoc, or I have affiliations at the Eastern Colorado VA, as well as the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. And with my postdoc, I'm fortunate that I get to work actually on several projects that span um, populations such as total joint replacements, lower limb amputation, and of course, the population of interest for tonight, the individuals with multiple sclerosis. And I do have a history of working with individuals with multiple sclerosis. Um, Before my PhD training, I clinically treated quite a few individuals with MS. Um, As well as during my PhD training, I was involved in a couple projects um, with individuals with MS. And currently tonight with our um, poster I'll be talking about and my postdoc, I continued on that trend and had more experiences with research in MS. Well, that's great. We love talking to researchers and hearing all about sort of the latest and greatest and what people are up to and what they're thinking about. And um, fatigue in in MS has been featured on our podcast. And so we're excited to kind of continue to delve into that topic. So the title of your poster was Increased Psychosocial Aspects of Fatigue Associated with Increased Mobility Impairments in People with Multiple Sclerosis. Tell us a little bit about how you became interested in looking at the various aspects of fatigue, not just fatigue in general. Yeah, so fatigue is really an issue with individuals with MS. Um, Up to 75% of people with MS will say that they have fatigue in some form. And A lot of times in the physical therapy realm, we focus or perseverate on the physical aspects of fatigue and may even not even realize that there are other aspects of fatigue that we could be assessing and possibly addressing in our physical therapy sessions. And Mm -hmm. one easy way to kind of um, simply capture those aspects is doing um, the modified fatigue impact scale. And I will say with a caveat with um, this scale that not all the aspects of fatigue are weighted evenly throughout it, meaning that um, there are 21 statements on this scale and Mm -hmm. there's nine that focus more on the physical aspects of fatigue. Then it goes into cognitive subscale where there's 10 statements that they have on there. 
And then there's only two really that look at the psychosocial aspects of fatigue. So it would be nice if it would be a, a little bit more evenly distributed, but um, it's just nice that we are able to kind of at least get a glimpse of all those different um, proportions. And so that was the yeah. scale that we used for this particular project. Yeah. So I was actually going to ask you about that. I'm glad you talked about the various items on the scale and how they were distributed because there, there are only two related to psychosocial aspects of fatigue. So since there's only two, I think it would behoove us to actually kind of just look at them, um, talk about them. So the, the two items that they have are, I have been less motivated to participate in social activities. And then you ask people to scale that on a Likert type scale from zero to four, where zero is never and four is almost always. And then the other statement is, I have been limited in my ability to do things away from home. So again, zero is never, and four is almost always. So higher score indicates higher fatigue, more fatigue, correct? Yep, you got it. Okay. So I'm just curious, are there like other things that you think would want to ask or maybe sometimes do ask if people score high on those do you probe more or how how could somebody probe more into kind of what's going on yeah typically i haven't um probed any more but if i did have um the opportunity and was going to ask more questions i definitely would want to ask more about, since oftentimes with physical therapy, we're interested in physical activity. And as the emphasis with this poster, we're looking at mobility outcomes, asking questions about social support specifically with physical activity, I think would be um, helpful. So like asking someone, do you have, you know, someone that is your exercise buddy or something to that effect that someone that's motivating you and kind of keeping you accountable with um, some physical activity goals that you may have would definitely be something I'd be interested in. Yeah. Yeah. That, that would be great. And the other thing that we've talked about too on this podcast is community exercise programs. It seems like another thing you could ask about. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you just mentioned the, the mobility outcome measures that you looked at. So what were they in this study? Yeah, so we had the timed 25-foot walk, the timed-up-and-go test, the dynamic gait index, as well as the six-minute walk test. Mm -hmm. um, so those are great in that they're, I think, that they're, they're fairly broad. They get various aspects of mobility. And how many people were part of the study? We had 72 individuals with multiple sclerosis. And I will say with our sample, we um, only included people that could walk 100 meters without an assistive device. So we didn't really capture the people that were on the higher end of disability for this study. Okay. Yeah. And the EDSS scores were, it looks like the average was about three and a half. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So fairly functional folks. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, um, you know, and interestingly, they still, even people functioning well are still dealing with fatigue, which um, 
you know, you kind of started with, but sometimes we think about that more as people progress in their disease. So it's nice to remember that even early on, or when people don't have a ton of disability, they might still be battling fatigue, particularly with MS. And so what did you find? Well, for um, across kind of looking at all of the total as well as the subscale outcomes, we found relationships with the total MFIS score. Um, so indicating more fatigue was related with worse performance on our mobility outcomes. And then when we went down and looked at the actual subscales, the psychosocial subscale was weakly to moderately correlated with each of the mobility outcomes as well. And of course, what's traditionally found um, as the physical subscale was significantly correlated to, and we did not find any significant correlations with the cognitive subscale. And were you surprised by those results at all? I have a particular interest in cognition, so I guess I was a little bit surprised and maybe bummed that cognition wasn't significant with this particular study. But really, when going back and looking at the cognition questions that are on the MFIS, it's really more reflection of how fatigue impacts their cognition and that it's not a cognitive performance test. Right, and that's what right. you would, um, that's what's traditionally shown in the literature is that it's cognitive performance that's linked more so with mobility as opposed to fatigue impacting your cognition. So reflecting more on that, I wasn't as surprised, but initially was a bit bummed and surprised by that finding. And I also feel like it could be interesting to look at a cognitive scale or, you know, a measure of cognition, you know. Yeah, and we are actually exploring that a bit more with one of our current studies. We're doing the symbol digit modality test and looking at it for a um, intervention to look where we target hip strengthening exercises. And we are doing the MFIS with it. So we'll see if there's any relationship between those two. So mm-hmm. cool. Well, you'll have to let us know what you Absolutely. find. Out. Great. So one of the things we're really interested in is the clinical relevance. So what do you think about that? How is somebody going to sort of take this information and apply it when they see their next patient? Yeah, I think this really just brings to light that we can't just be sending home exercise programs home with our individuals with MS and expect that that's going to solve it. We need to be thinking about the context of how are we going to motivate them and what are the other social or environmental barriers that um, could impact their physical activity or whatever the progress is to improve their functional mobility overall. And really, this goes to some work that thankfully has already um, kind of been established um, related to the cognitive behavior therapy for fatigue. Um, Don Eddy at the University of Washington, as well as Anna Kras at the University of Michigan, they've actually done quite a bit of work um, kind of within this realm of psychosocial aspects of individuals with MS. And so I would um, reference therapists to really look at what they're doing more on the psychology type of atmosphere and um, see how that can be introduced in the clinic. Um, One way that I think of how it could um, possibly be implemented is doing like motivational interviewing strategies, for example, um, related to their activity goals or other goals that you may have. Um, So those are just some thoughts that I have initially about the findings from this project. I think it's always good when we expand our practice to think about the whole person. 
And what can we be doing to support people sort of in between those times that we're seeing them to stay active and to continue to do the movement and mobility and exercise that we know is going to help them to feel better. So the more of that we can have in place, the better. I mean, it is hard as practicing therapists to find the time and the resources to do a lot of that stuff. So, you know, I have this pie in the sky idea someday that all of our clinics will have, you know, social workers and, you know, just people that are aides or whoever that are there to support our patients, no, or a gym facility associated with your clinic that is open to your patients to come to and exercise in a supported manner. So I think a lot of that could, could go far for people. And I actually think one of the benefits from COVID is, you know, more of the virtual platform for exercise is making it so that people can, you know, they don't need to necessarily have transportation to get someplace or they can, you know, do it from home and be supported if they can manage the technology. So there are options out there, but it does take a little bit extra work, I think, for us to try to connect our patients with those options. Yeah. And on the note of COVID, I did want to add uh, the comment too, that this data was collected before COVID. And so mm-hmm. um, kind of those restrictions that we find ourselves in right now were actually um, not a thing when we collected this data, because obviously those rest- restrictions could impact the answers to those psychosocial questions. Right. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, Rochelle, thank you so much for joining us and for all of this information. We do have a tradition of asking people what they like to do when they're not working. And I know as a postdoc, you probably work a lot, but we hope you take a little bit of time to do something enjoyable. So what do you do when you do that? Well, I have a husband and a two-year-old son. And so a lot of my non-work time, um, since we live in Colorado now, we really enjoy hiking. And so that's a great way to challenge my balance is to have a 25-pound toddler on my back trying to go up a mountain. And um, also I've enjoyed, I grew up in Nebraska and so didn't have a lot of access to professional sports and things like that. And so living here in Denver, I went to my first NBA game last month and just really enjoying kind of those things that we still can do, thankfully, um, amidst everything that's happening with COVID. Yeah, great. That's so fun. All right, Rochelle, well, thank you so much for being here and congratulations on your award and your great poster. Thank you. Hope to see you both maybe in person at a conference someday. We're excited to welcome Dr. Rebecca Martin to discuss her poster from the ANPT annual conference with us. But before we do that, Um, Rebecca, we'd like to hear just a little bit about you and what you do on a day-to-day basis before we get into your poster. So welcome and tell us a bit about yourself. Sure. And thanks for having me, Parm. And I'm really excited about being here tonight to talk about my research, a little bit about what I do. I teach full-time at Hanover College. It's a hybrid program that just started up. We have our first cohort going right now. And uh, I'm also big into just service within the APTA and the ANPT. So I help with the COVID response panel and the COVID-19 core outcome measures task force and chair the DDSIG here. And I'm very excited to be speaking with you guys in this role tonight. Great. 
And on that note, we just want to say that Rebecca had nothing to do with selection of any of the poster awardees. And we are, you know, so thankful for the work that you do for our profession in general. And I've actually been using that COVID flow sheet at work that you helped to develop. So, yeah. Awesome. That's yeah. great to hear. So it's good. There's good stuff out there. Um, so let's get into the poster. Your poster is titled Effects of Modeling on Motor Control and Sway During Sit-to-Stand in Parkinson's Disease. So tell us a little bit, I guess I'm curious about like, where did this come from, this idea? Right, well, it, it came from conversations with a lot of different individuals. Um, with George Folk and Lee Dibble, who are both on my dissertation committee. And this is actually part of my dissertation work, as well as conversations with Terry Ellis, you know, usually sparking out of CSM and just, these are the things that we know right now. What don't we know? What what are those interesting questions that we just don't have answered yet? And so uh, it was actually a conversation with Terry Ellis that got me on the idea of doing sit to stand. And this one in particular was focused on modeling, But one of the questions that came up and is part of both this and some of the other research was something where Lee Dibble and I were talking about what happens when people with Parkinson's disease are standing taller than typical. And, you know, if we're cueing them to do that, do we really know the consequences of asking them to do that? So So when you say standing taller than typical, what do you mean? So individuals with Parkinson's disease often have that forward posture. And we usually think that that's that's happening because they feel like they have better control or better postural control when they're forward a little bit because they can react better to um, postural challenges. So if we ask them to stand taller than they usually do, so to get rid of some of that hunched posture, is that going to make their balance better or worse? And a lot of people think, as soon as they see somebody with Parkinson's that hunch posture, they really want to correct that. But do we know the consequences? Because if they've done that over time, if that's an adaptation to improve their balance, maybe we're making them worse by asking them to stand taller. Okay. Got it. So then with that sort of background framework, what specifically did you look at in this study? So we had individuals with Parkinson's disease, 13 of them, and 13 healthy controls. And we wanted to compare first the way their sit-to-stands were just in an uncued condition. And then we had cues. Um, we used a modeling cue, and that's what I talk about in this paper. But we also used a cue uh, of reaching to targets where they would reach forward for a target and then stand up to a target, as well as a cue for an internal attentional focus where we had them bend forward at their hips and stand until their back is straight. And we wanted to see how does how do these different kinds of cues affect their postural sway and their actual motor control and ability to stand up independently. Mm-hmm. So how did you evaluate that sit-to-stand transfer? We used hand timers to be able to evaluate how long it took for them to actually start that sit-to-stand. So the latency period between when they when they would be trying to stand or when they were cued to stand and when they actually started moving. We also had um, Opal's balance sensors on them. So body-worn kinetic sensors 
that were able to pick up on degrees. So we could infer the angles at their hips, at their knees, and in their trunk. Um, and also those picked up postural sway then when they were standing up. Okay. So, I mean, you looked at quite a few measures. What do you think are sort of the two or three that are the most important to focus on? So with this particular condition, with modeling, it really, the things that stand out would be the duration of the transfer, the latency of the transfer, and then just their overall sway. Um, So for individuals with Parkinson's disease, when we had a person sitting across from them and modeling that sit-to-stand transfer, they were able to stand more quickly both in the latency. So they were able to to initiate that stand more quickly and also in duration. So they were able to complete the overall duration more quickly. And I've had a few people ask the question of, well, you know, it it comes down to like one second of time and is that clinically relevant or not? Um, And the answer is we don't know the MCID on how long it takes uh, or how much change we'd need to see to make it clinically important for someone with Parkinson's disease. But we chose individuals who can get out of chairs almost always on their own. And then we put them in a slightly lower chair to try to make it more of a challenge for them. So we could hopefully elicit more change or see a a bigger difference here. But long story short, these are people at the start of Parkinson's disease. And we were hoping we found something here that we could transfer this to people in later stages where it might make a much bigger difference. Yeah. Okay. So you found that people, their latency was decrease. So they reacted faster when they had the modeling Mm -hmm. cue and their overall transfer from sitting to standing was faster. Yes. And what about the sway? What did you find with the sway? And so there were two things with sway that really stood out. The first was just their overall sway area. So it was statistically smaller. So there was less sway upon standing. And then another one, which is more important really, and that's sway jerk. When you have those quick movements where you have to have a quick correction in order to maintain balance. And sway jerk has specifically been found in Parkinson's disease to be one of the bigger predictors of fall. Okay, so you want to decrease sway jerk. Yeah, you want to decrease sway jerk because that indicates that they're going, you know, towards their limits of stability and having to, you know, make a quick correction in order to maintain balance. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. So, so generally speaking, you found that having the visual model was helpful for somebody to, to complete that sit to stand more similarly to the way a control would, would complete it. Right. Um, so you did mention though that, and this is not part of the poster. This is just me being nosy. Um, the other two conditions that you sort of looked at, which one was like a reaching or a target external focus. And then one was a more internal focus. Will you give Mm -hmm. us any information about what you found there? Or do you know, or. Yeah. So when we had people reaching to targets, we had them reaching forward to a target with the hopes that it would make sure that they were able to get through that pre-extension phase where you're trying to bring your weight forward and center it over your, your new base of support of your feet. And then we had them stand up um, and we cued them to stand towards the ceiling. And with that in mind, I might've, could I do it over again? I would have had them stand until they're 
um, shoulder reached my hand or there was an end target. Because what we found when we cued them to do this is there was a great transfer through that pre-extension phase until they were able to balance their weight over their feet. But then they didn't have a clear place to stop. So this was the only condition where we actually increased their fall risk because some of them went backwards when they were trying to stand to the ceiling, which gives a little insight into whether or not if they're standing more tall than typical, if that will throw them off balance or not. And so how do you know that that increased their fall risk? Because they actually, we had some people who lost their balance backwards and we had to catch them. Right. Okay. And that's the only condition that that happened in. Yeah. That's interesting. So didn't you say you did a reaching? Yes. So with that one, they reached forward during that pre-extension phase. To a target. To a target. And when they touched that target, then they were given the cue to stand to the ceiling. So there were two external kind of targets to reach for, but one was attainable and the other wasn't. And I think because we didn't have that end target for them to touch, they, you know. They just kind of kept going and kept going into extension and extended right backward. Right. Yep. Some of the time. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. But they Um, were the quickest in that one. They were the most efficient. They need the least amount of help, but we increased that fall risk. So it is a question of, do we just need a second target that they can, they know when to stop at, or is there a bigger issue? Right. Yeah. Is there a different way to give that external cue that doesn't lead to that sort of, I'm sure it's not actually overextension, but in their case, overextension. Right. Interesting. Well, I, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I love the fact that, and not that this is any surprise, but that it supports the whole optimal mm-hmm. approach of <laughs> external focus of attention. Right. Which brings me to the other one where we looked at that internal attentional focus and the hypothesis was that they were probably going to do worse. And this was the only one where they needed increased attempts to be able to stand It increased their duration and their latency. So it took them longer and they were less independent with that. So um, definitely that cue to to bend forward at their hips and stand until their back is straight was much more confusing for these individuals. Which is so interesting because that's what we do all the time, right? Yeah. Because it's it's easy. We think it's a strategy that's going to help people and they don't always have a target in front of them, um, wherever they are, you know, so, so using that, I think the challenge for therapists is to come up with these external cues that are usable for a patient. Right. And so one of the things that I really recommend people do is wherever in your home, you're having trouble getting up from, if that's, that's where we want these targets. So let's create them and make them look natural. So if you're having a hard time getting out of your favorite chair, put a little coffee table in front of it, put a tissue box on there. You're going to reach to the tissue box and then stand up. Um, mm-hmm. and, and we know that that would improve their, their sit to stand. Now we're not sure about the increase in fall risk on that one. So a little more studies need to be done before we really set people free on that idea. But it's something that you could do in the bathroom with hamper. You could do it in the living room with a tissue box on a coffee table. You can do it at the dining room table. So um, that's something we could take anywhere. And in the study, we actually used a hand. A hand is something that you could easily, you know, put out for any patient anywhere. And then you're actually even in a good position to catch them should they go off balance a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So 
you know, one of the things that I thought was great about this work that you did and the information in the poster was the clinical relevance. So can you talk a little bit about how you think people can use this when they head into work tomorrow? Yeah, absolutely. So this is, to me, this is really exciting because it's something that we can tell to caregivers that are struggling at home. They have back pain. They're having a hard time getting people up from a seat. We can, we can instruct, you know, CNAs, we can instruct people working at the physician's offices on how to get people up more easily. Um, But what this really tells me is that for discrete tasks, that modeling could be helpful. So maybe this works for more than just sit to stand. I would like to think it does because now we're seeing that we can take what we've learned from continuous tasks and a few other discrete tasks. And we're seeing that these external cues help. So it's, you know, more fuel for that fire, but modeling in particular, there's not a lot of research out there on it. Great. Love it. All right, Rebecca. Well, thank you so much for all of this information. It's been really interesting and we look forward to reading more about your results and research as you continue to get it out there. Um, and, and so this, you said this was part of your doctoral research. Is that yes. Correct. Um, what do you have any next steps or further research that you're involved in? Just trying to find time to actually get them out into the journals. So uh, that's the direction I'm headed next for right now and got my hands in a few different projects. So I hope to get back to this soon, but working with the, the COVID task force and getting that information out there for now. Yeah. Great. All right. So you know the drill. When you're not working, what do you like to do? I am a huge outdoor person. I love to hike, kayak, um, go biking, anything that gets me outside and moving. Um, Parm, I know you like to hike. You've been doing the the long trail. I'm a 46er because I'm from New York. So I just had my seven-year-old and my nine-year-old up on Grace Peak. They carried 15 and 25 pound packs for a good portion of it. We are, we're backpackers. Yeah. Well, that's exciting. Um, And hopefully we'll get a chance to hike together at some point in the near future. All right. Well, thanks for being here. And um, we're going to hear from you, I'm sure, really soon again. And thanks for having me, Parm. It was fun for us to just get to talk on here for, for once. Thanks for joining us and special thanks to our guests today, Dr. Rochelle Hoffman and Dr. Rebecca Martin. This podcast was produced and edited by the ANPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group podcast team. Our team includes Sarah Zoller, Katie McGraw, Rebecca Martin, Adriana Perry, Casey Burris. I'm Karen Padgett. Subscribe to our newsletter on the ANPT website, neuropt.org, or check us out on Facebook. And please share this episode with a colleague today. Thanks to Jimmy McKay for providing music. And this, this does not end up in the pooper reel. So just be aware if somebody pops in here, it's not a complete stranger. We're not being whatever Zoom bombed or something. <laughs> Is that what it's called? I've heard it said that way. Yeah. I'm such a like, I know. I don't know. I don't know any terms. Just ask my kids.
up. I mean, I can't figure out how to set that thing up. I don't know how to use a CPM machine. <laughs> Let's get a whirlpool in there while you're at it. Yeah, I know there's so much that it's like, there's just so much. It could, should be a full-time, it should be my full-time job really, but it's not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't pay well. <laughs> right. But when you're out there, you can forget about that part. So. <laughs> oh, wait, can I ask you one more question? Is there, do, are you hiking in snow yet or not yet? Whew. Farm. Whew. 